this is actually part of the nuance many people are not aware of about why we have such a big problem to solve. It's insane. So if you think about what that means, if you have no child support agreement in place with your ex, that means that every single expense is up to negotiation. That means you're texting and emailing each other all the time when it comes to money. Actually. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Jacqueline. Nice to meet you. You started your startup recently, a couple of years ago, and originally started as Ensemble, and now you're branded as an own word. And before that, you've been at Uber, Blue Apron, and a bunch of other companies. How do you end up launching the fintech company in the first place? And did you plan to make a fintech company first because your company's expenses tracking application for the divorced parents? Can you share more? I definitely knew that I wanted to be a founder and I wanted to start a company. I knew that I wanted to do something that was highly mission-driven and had really positive impact for society. I left Blue Apron in order to start something of my own. I thought at that time I actually didn't have, I had a few different ideas that were not in the fintech space. And so I wasn't specifically looking to work in fintech. What really drew me to this opportunity is the really deep emotional pain points behind the target market and the customers that we serve. In many ways, I see us as a bridge between fintech and it's an emotional need disguised as a financial need. And more important to me was the mission and the impact of the company that I built more than it actually being uh, fintech. You said that you had two other ideas. Why did you decide to go with this one? It was an interesting time because I left Blue Apron in 2019 and really started kind of digging in around winter of that year. I had another idea that I was validating and then the pandemic hit. And that second idea was actually pretty much eradicated by the changes that happened at the start of the pandemic uh, culturally and from society perspective. Also, the raw pain points around this particular problem are so stark that I knew that there was an actual need to be met there. And the other thing is a personal identification with the problem. I saw my own parents get divorced at the age of 14 an age where you're sort of just old enough to understand yeah. both sides of the table and not necessarily know who to believe somewhere in the middle. Kind of had experienced some stress that passed down from my parents arguing about money to me and thought that there was a real opportunity here to, to make an impact and avoid that type of stress, not only for the parents, but also for the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. When I was reading the application description on the App Store and Play Store, that actually feels more like mental health application. Remove the stress, make it easy on everybody. It's such a nice thing. Like combining yeah. with fintech, that wow, it's like no people are just struggling with all this stuff every day. Why did you wait so long? Like, since like 14 years old, what was this triggering point when you actually decided, okay, I must do it. I must build onward. Are you saying what was the point of my career that I decided to start a company? Let's start with the one where you decided to solve this pain problem, managing the expenses for the divorcees. Well, that first part, I was working at a venture studio in New York called Co-Created. I originally joined them to get access to other entrepreneurs and office space in New York. Sometimes the journey can be lonely, and I thought having some other folks that were in similar positions could be helpful for me. Um, came across the idea of Onward while I was there, and as I mentioned, looking for something to start. Timing was right. I thought there was really big legs behind this idea. We had some initial pre-seed funding that we were able to get through that connection with the venture studio from City Ventures and everything out of all the stars aligned in terms of timing that made that the particular right moment to start onward. Basically in my career, both of my parents were entrepreneurs and both grandfathers on either side were entrepreneurs. Wow. I knew that I wanted to start something, but I, I really wanted to spend 10 plus years of my career learning. And that's where I intentionally started out my career at an early stage consulting company, helping entrepreneurs to raise funding, to understand mindset of the entrepreneur building something, to then understanding VCs and how they choose companies to invest in, to then 
kind of being in a hands-on operational role at Uber and Blue Apron to give myself that foundation of seeing all aspects of the entrepreneurial journey from different vantages before going in and starting something myself. What was the most impactful part that you learned back at Uber, Blue Apron and consulting companies? What was the thing that actually helped you build this company? A lot of lessons around culture were really instrumental for me in building this company and particularly at Uber and Blue Apron. I happened to be at Uber at a pretty interesting time. I joined at around 2,500 employees and left at around 13,000. It was a period of hyper growth. It was also a period of a lot of turmoil in the media that started during my last six months there around January of 2017. Um, in many ways, Part of the demise of that period of Uber was really came back to the cultural values that were set out at the organization, cultural values that included stepping on toes, principled confrontation, always be hustling, and those cultural values and also the rating system where people were actually rated against each other versus teams being rated holistically actually caused a very highly competitive environment that did not promote and appreciate and reward teamwork. I think it was seeing some of those cultural values really degrade the culture of the organization and even the company's standing in the media and eventually stock price at the IPO. Um, so that was a very formative experience. And then followed by Blue Apron, which in many ways that they had a much softer culture that originally attracted me to them. But in many ways, it was also the demise of the time that I was there. I joined a few months before the IPO and then the IPO was not what they had hoped and then saw subsequently two rounds of layoffs during my time there. So I think culture kind of starts from the ground, from the kind of as a fish rots from the head down, culture starts at the beginning of everything that you do at a company. And actually that's why before I even hired my first employee, I laid out the cultural values of the organization to be very intentional and specific around how I wanted to build the culture. Like building culture starts on day one. The culture and the target audience that you serve is very unique in a way that you need to be really aligned well on the values, on the mission, on the spirit, right? On how you actually do this, not just externally, but also internally. So how do you project all your values through the product, through the team to your customers? Our first cultural value is empathy because we do serve a target audience that has very strong and significant emotional pain points. They're coming from a point of very of interpersonal friction, which is actually one of the reasons that they come to download Onward and they need our services. So we really have to put ourselves in their shoes to serve them best. That's really important for me. And the cultural value is not only outward facing towards our customers, but also written in a way that also inward facing and empathy for each other. That's come to light in some interesting ways. I did an exercise at one of our offsites this year year where we had to pull a name out of a hat and choose another person at the company and put ourselves in their shoes and say, what are the KPIs that are most important to them? What do they care about? What's easy for them in their role? What's difficult in their role? And the team found that really valuable. We also live those values through talking to users. I had a user call two days ago and everyone on the team speaking to users every single month to really build that empathy. And even if you didn't, your parents weren't divorced or you didn't go through a divorce yourself, it's really important to understand those emotional mindsets in order to build the best product for our target market. How do you find energy to do those interviews with the customers? How do you prepare yourself? I love doing the interviews. It's one of my favorite things about the role. And it's because I look at it as a privilege. It's not every day that people share with you the most intimate uh, aspects of their family life, particularly around the arguments that they have about money, how they split custody with their ex, how contentious or amicable their divorce is. So I feel really privileged that people are willing to share that type of information and 
honestly, it's been fairly inspiring to hear people be willing to share so much and so many details about their lives. I always look forward to, to that because people are opening up and sharing and that's always nice. really nice. It's nice to be really being able to listen on the other side and understand and reflect and be fully empathetic. I'm curious to all the listeners that are listening right now and thinking about divorces in their lives, if they have been impacted in any way, what would be your number one advice to them if they find themselves in this similar situation? Yeah. Interestingly enough, in the United States, the number one cause of divorce is infidelity, followed by money as the number two cause of divorce. A ton of people are getting divorced because of money. And I think as a society... Uh, we've become very uncomfortable when it comes to talking about money, at least in American society. People are uncomfortable, even if you think about asking your best friend to pay you back for dinner or lunch where they might owe you that money. That's an awkward conversation. And people who are in a relationship very often struggle in terms of talking about money. No matter who you are, it's important to be conscious of how uncomfortable we are as a society and talking about it. And even before you might find yourself at a point of divorce to be, you know, to build really open and proactive communication around money, even if you're in a relationship, but also in your friendships, parental relationships with siblings. If you're taking care of parents, there's a lot of relationships where money can cause friction. So that's first and foremost, my advice. If you find yourself going through a divorce or separating from somebody that you're in a romantic relationship with, there's a lot of systemic problems that we're actually solving with our app. Today in America, the average cost of going through the full legal process of getting a divorce is $34,000. Because the vast majority of people can't afford that amount of money, they end up actually not going through the full process and exiting the divorce process with no child support agreement in place. Today in the U.S., 65% of those who get divorced with children have no child support agreement in place. This is actually part of the nuance many people are not aware of about why we have such a big problem to solve. It's insane. So if you think about what that means, if you have no child support agreement in place with your ex, that means that every single expense is up to negotiation. That means you're texting and emailing each other all the time when it comes to money. Actually, even if you do have a child support agreement in place, this was also very illuminating for me to learn back at the beginning of, of starting the company, is that child support is calculated differently in every single state in the, in the U.S., and it only covers food, shelter, and clothing by legal definition. There's still, on top of that, a bunch of different expenses that are not included. That's all medical bills, all extracurricular activities, things like math tutoring and summer camps. So to some degree or another... This entire market is talking about expenses via text messages or emailed spreadsheets. And you can just imagine if you had to email an ex times per month, just how difficult that might be. Yeah, so let's, let's review everything in this long table. <laughs> my recommendation would be, even if you don't go through the legal process, try to, at least on a personal level, come to an agreement about how money is going to be shared for your children. Actually look at your bank statements for the past several months. Look at how much you spent money on your, how much money was spent on your kids in each one of those months and be realistic about the stuff that comes up. You can even look back on a one-year basis because sometimes these expenses are seasonal, whether it's summer camp, back to school, holidays, and ensure you and your former partner have a good understanding in place of how much money your kids cost you and how you're going to split them, even if those categories not covered by child support things like medical bills and extracurricular, et cetera. The more you can proactively communicate, lay everything out and go into the process with an expectation of how those expenses will be handled. So you're definitely going to be the better for it. Wow. 
that's a nice overview. What would be the most strategic parts for you to focus on next at Onward? We are building ourselves as, as a fintech player. A lot of other divorce apps in the space that are focused on other aspects. Check the reviews. Yours are the best so far. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We're we're very proud of that. There are other apps out there that focus more on custody calendars and scheduling and communication features that we are purely focused on the finances. And we think that that's a really interesting play in this space. Um, from here forward, we actually are creating a suite of innovative financial products targeted at the needs of divorced parents, things like card products savings products, et cetera. I don't want to give away all our secret sauce, but you can expect some more interesting financial products to be coming down the line from us over the next several years. And what's really interesting about this space is if you think about the financial dynamics in the space, you basically have one person, very often in these relationships, there's someone who has primary custody and that person, because they have more time with the kids, will end up upfronting more bills on their card they're also, so they're out of pocket, then they need to ask to be repaid, which is emotionally challenging, and then often kind of nag or remind the other person without certainty whether or not that other person will repay them. So if you think about it, it's every single hmm. month, because a lot of people only settle up monthly. Every single month, somebody provides an unsecured loan to their former partner for at the tune of thousands of dollars because the yeah. cost of raising a child is it's $1,100 per month per child per the USDA. If you have two kids, you're out of pocket. Let's say you could be two, over $2,000 a month and not know whether or not you're going to get repaid for that money. From a financial perspective, it's like a short-term unsecured loan from someone that you're not sure is going to pay you back. So negotiations are still happening but inside your application. So they still have to go through the same process each month. How did you do this yeah. monthly settlement? Why did you go through this time period? Like, why not to be clear? We actually don't set it. So the two co-parents can choose whatever cadence they want to settle up at. Our research indicates that about half of people settle up monthly and about half of them settle up after every expense or every couple expenses and not on a traditional cadence. Very often, the difference between those two different groups is that sometimes people transition to us from text message where they were used to settling up more like one-off expenses. And sometimes they transition to us via Excel. For those who used Excel, they usually only went through the pain once a month. So they still like to settle up once a month. So we don't push any particular cadence on people. We en enable them to self-serve based on what, what works best for their relationship. I cannot help but ask you a question. Like, how do you compare yourself to Venmo, like the social component? How do you see it? Yeah, we have a lot of team members that come from PayPal, Venmo, three of them at the moment so far. I really have a lot of respect for what Venmo is doing. What you would find for our target market is that Venmo is very often used, but Venmo usually is sort of at the end of a negotiation cycle. It's just the thing mm -hmm. that processes the payment, but there was still all the back and forth that happened first via text messages or emailed spreadsheets. So we're an end-to-end -end solution. Our app automates all of that difficult communication that would very often otherwise be happening via text message before that. We also keep track of who owes who's at all different points. It doesn't have a running list of all the expenses, what each person owes, the ability to negotiate on those. Um, record keeping, which is also very important to this target market, the ability to have every kind of conversation, every transaction recorded in a place that they can then export their data if they need it for legal purposes, et cetera. Venmo doesn't offer any of those features. So for the actual yeah. payment processing, it's a great option. But in terms of everything that comes before it, if you rely on Venmo, you're still texting, emailing, negotiating. Makes me think of like you're building not just a financial stack, but an emotional stack for them to go through this process. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Before we dive into the team and fundraising, like and all the amazing stuff that you built internally, 
Can you share more? You originally started as an ensemble company and then you rebranded onward. How did your mission crystallize during that process? And what made you make this decision, right? How do you fly with this new brand name these days? I really love the name Ensemble. I thought about it like a group of people coming together for the benefit of the children, kind of this concept of it takes a village to raise a child. Grandparents are involved, parents are involved. The reason that we ended up rebranding was actually because people had such a hard time spelling the word Ensemble. Unexpected, things you would never think about <laughs> as a founder, but we had 14 different spelling variations leading to our website. And when I would be on user calls, I would kind of ask people to find us in the app store and share their screens. And I'd say, you know, type in ensemble. And I could see that they were just stuck. Uh, they didn't know how to spell it. And then also were uncomfortable pronouncing it in case they pronounced it wrong. Given that we're a consumer app, virality is really important to us. So we didn't want people to either forget the word, forget how to spell it, or be uncomfortable pronouncing it when they want to share the app with a friend. We wanted to choose a name that was simpler catchier and onward for me is really kind of symbolic of the brand. One of the most important things, our mission is that if you were to just do some searches around divorce on Google, the vast majority of everything that you would find is very negative, backwards looking content that actually makes you kind of angrier. It usually villainizes your ex. And it forces, I think, some stigma around divorce, whereas we've really thought about turning that on its head. Uh, in my mind, if nearly one in two marriages ends in divorce, there should be nothing wrong with being a co-parent. From a brand perspective, really want to normalize co-parenting. And instead of looking backwards, look forwards and get excited about that next stage of life, excited about the relationship with their child or children, et cetera. And that's really where the, the name Onward came in. I think it's very aligned with your mission. Love it. Let's talk about the team. You said that three folks are coming from the background of PayPal and Venmo. You built a seed series that you just raised recently at $10 million. Congratulations. Thank you. How did you manage to actually get this amazing team together? Well, first, a funny story about that photo, which we took it the day before the article went live. We happened to be at an offsite that week. We do them once a quarter. And by chance, we took that photo at about six o'clock, just as the sun was setting the day before the article, which went live at 7.30 in the morning. Hey, I really want my whole team to be in this article. And I told them when we took the photo, it's so short notice. I don't know if we can promise it. And somehow it managed to get in. I was really happy that the team got to share that, that moment. In terms of, you know, of how I thought about the team, building the team with fintech experience has been something really important to me from day one. I don't come from a fintech background as the founder. And because we have such complex kind of financial products on our roadmap, I really wanted to make sure that we had that talent and those previous experiences well represented on the team. In terms of how I built the team, it was just a lot of heads down work. That's your secret. How did you find that? <laughs> <laughs> I found kind of it was kind of a trickle down effect. Our VP of product comes from PayPal. He brought in the other two folks that came from PayPal, but I found him. I really needed a VP of product with that particular skill set, and I literally decided to spend a weekend. Uh, just looking for this person. Hmm. I created a list of all the, all the top fintech companies and literally went person by person, kind of searching for product folks within every single organization and wrote every single one of them a message from my LinkedIn. I wrote like 250 people that one weekend and ended up paying off and bearing fruit. And he brought in another two folks. Recently, I hired a, an operations person who helps as well with hiring and he's just systematized that approach 
looking at target companies and reaching out to them on our behalf. So since then, we've brought in other folks with fintech experience, including someone who joined our team about three weeks ago, who came from Acorns, someone from Intuit. So really amazing companies. Um, I think for me, it just goes back to being intentional around who we want to hire, what backgrounds they have, and then going after it. It's pretty it. amazing from somebody from who is not from fintech build such an amazing fintech team like that. That's really a good job. Thank if, you. Thank if you. you would recommend to other founders that are trying to kind of replicate the same success in building fintech teams, what would you recommend? Them? What would be your, your advice? Let's say do exactly what I did. Go ahead. Always know what you want. Think about your dream team member or team, dream person for whichever key role you're hiring for. And then try to find that person at a bunch of other companies that you believe that are relevant to your space and then relentlessly go after it one by one. Write them, tell them your story. People actually are pretty responsive when the note comes from the founder themselves. Do that, go one by one, write the people that you think would be great for your company. And you'd be surprised how many people are willing to have conversations. Awesome. How did you make sure that they are aligned on the mission and the values in your company? The biggest reason that I think a lot of people responded to the message that I sent them on LinkedIn was because the mission resonated. Most people, it's pretty rewarding to work at a company that they believe is mission-driven and also has a lot of positive impact on society. So that actually hasn't been the hard part. It's been the part that I think... You skip the hard part. Um, <laughs> exactly. Most people, even if they've not gone through this, can relate to the problem. Uh, we just hired a new VP of engineering who is a co-parent. That particular connection to the problem. If you've been through this experience and some of my other hires uh, are the children of divorced parents and if you can identify it, it the problem sells itself. Yeah. I always told people whether it's employees that I was recruiting or investors during conversations, don't take my word for it. Like literally call anyone you know who's been through this problem, ask them about what it's like to share finances with their ex and like they'll be your validation that's yeah. a that's a nice speech you had experience at the vc you had consulting experience at Ernst young i think you started 2020 you did seed mm -hmm. three million dollars and then series a 10 million dollars how impactful was your experience that you had before those companies actually you being able to raise interestingly enough when i spoke when i pitched vcs and i told them that i had worked in vc previously almost nobody asked me where what was your experience like i thought that would be a very common question but nobody asked and so I focus on the experience i had at uber and blue apron that made a big difference bigger mm -hmm. name brand companies that are well known and, and well respected in the industry that probably was more helpful to me than any of the experience i had had earlier in my career whether it was like early stage startup consulting or VC experience. So knowing this, would you do the same kind of like career path or would you skip the VC route in the very beginning? I would do the exact same career path. I had always been really curious at the age that I worked in VC. I thought that that was potentially what I wanted to do long-term. I was really interested in learning more about it. What I learned during that is I think it's a super interesting industry, but it takes a very long time to learn whether or not you made the right decisions. Five-year, 10-year horizons. Whereas at Uber, I could make a decision for, let's say, putting out a new incentive to drivers, go live within two hours and find out the next day when I looked at the data, whether or not it was a good decision. So feedback loops are totally different. Personally, really like that feeling that you can be hands-on, you can change something, and the next day you see how it performed. It wouldn't change anything. My career path was really interesting, informative. I learned a lot. I met a lot of great people and brought me to where I am today. That's I'm a great answer. For that. <laughs> you mentioned that all this experimentation stuff that you've done back at Uber and the speed of the feedback. I'm curious if you're adopting the same kind of structure in your current company. 
Yeah, we did do a lot of testing, A-B testing on stuff and a bit Uber and experimentation. And we do the same thing here. Just recently, the last two weeks, we've got a text message that our app can either, you can either send it yourself and we pre-populate the text or our app can trigger it for you that comes from us where you can use that text message and language to invite your co-parent to join you on the platform. For the last couple of weeks, we've done some experimentation, trying different content for that text message and seeing how it performs. So we do use those similar strategies ourselves. Right. Advice time. So if you put yourself in the shoes of early stage founders, right, and they have no idea how it's done at Uber and other big companies, what would you tell them to do first when they want to do experiments in their businesses? I would say I would start with a hypothesis. For example, with this experimentation we're doing with the text message, we're trying different hypotheses. For example, you mention the more emotional pain points of the that people are dealing with that'll help them convert more if you share the value propositions of what people get after using the app that'll help them convert more have a philosophy on why you think changing something might impact your metrics for the better uh, and then test it out if you can have a control so that you can measure the, the results more efficiently don't be afraid to try things especially especially in the early stages where the opportunity costs kind of are lower and, and you want to be agile. Sometimes you might find something you didn't expect. Not wait 10 years, like in the VC industry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Most of the early stage companies, they struggle with scale, how to build the processes, like onboard the team and so on. How do you make sure that you invest in the right amount of time and effort to actually build this process right now at your company? Yeah, to not over-engineer things. We're still a small team. We're 10. We'll probably be 20, 25 by the next several years before we raise a B. We don't want to over-engineer with multiple levels of seniority. There's no need at this stage. Folks who are later in their career uh, and really had that, that level of experience, for example, our VP of engineering came, came in with 20 plus years experience from being a VP at a previous company. A lot of folks want to stay at the level that they were at previously. And that's the way that leveling has come into the organization. But I really try not to think about that too much. I want to get the best people around the table with the most relevant experience and uh, help them to solve the problems that we have in front of us. I try not to dwell too much on, on seniority and again, not over-engineer hierarchy at the organization, in the organization at this stage. That's really amazing. Like not many fintech you know, consumer fintechs can afford that kind of mindset. Building a close team is amazing. And they focus on the expertise. I think one of the reasons when I checked the reviews, I'm going to shoot the gears for a second on the App Store and the Play Store, that everybody loved the application, right? And they really adore that it's free to use it. And most of the other companies that are on the market, they're actually charging monthly fees. And they're building fintech first, right? How do you see the business model going into the future? It was important for us to, to start off free. We think about the expense tracking app that we developed as sort of like the, the ability for users to come into our ecosystem. And then from there, get to know us, build trust with us, and then upsell them on financial products. Not to say that we won't at some point charge a subscription for the expense tracking version of the product. We might at some point choose to do that. But really, we wanted people get kind of Firstly, we're validating, are people willing to do this? Are they willing to invite their ex to join them on the platform? Um, and putting a paywall kind of in front of all of that is not really where we want it to go. In the long term, we do plan to monetize primarily via our financial products. So for example, if we launch a card product, it would be interchange on items purchased on the card, interest, if we have a savings product down the road, et cetera. So primarily the revenue sources are the, from the financial products that we launch. There really hasn't been a brand out there that speaks to co-parents in America. Us holding that that space and speaking to that target market, it's actually really interesting. And that's why I think over the long term, it'll be valuable for us to have this distribution list of access to 
the most co-parents that we can in this country, even through providing them with really interesting and relevant content. Even if today we don't monetize every single one of those users, I think over the long term, it'll be an, a really interesting asset and play for the company to have access to so many co-parents in America. It's a really a unique opportunity for you to cover this entire market. And good news, if you are successful enough, like generationally, it's going to be a generational impact that you're building there. That's super awesome. Can you share yeah. more about your fintech stack to all the other founders that are listening? There's always like played and other integrations. What are the things that are not obvious to you as a founder that didn't have like any fintech experience before? Yeah. Talking to these banking as a service providers, there's so many out there today, at least 15 to 20. When I was pitching, every single VC is invested in a different one of them and they asked me to speak to them and they want to make introductions. And suddenly I've got like 25 people who all provide essentially what looks like the same service. And there's just very small nuances between them. And so I think that wasn't necessarily intuitive, although a lot of them could have provided us the same values, that you know, the same products that we were looking for. And that was actually one of the reasons that I knew I wanted to bring on a VP of product who had fintech experience who could help with those a bit more closely. So the final decision was made by basically a team figuring out what actually makes sense for the platform. We spoke to at least 15 banking as a service providers, at least narrowed it down to about three that we liked the most and that we'd heard really good things about from other founders in my network, from VCs. In the end, we chose one really based on how the conversations had gone with the founder of that banking as a service platform and also some of the features that they offered specifically with the one that we chose they bundled the ability to complete ACH transfers with other financial products. That was something that was harder to find elsewhere in the industry. Pretty basic process. Start talking to everyone, narrow down to let's say three top contenders. Boss is a very hot topic these days. And actually having like 15, 20 vendors is actually a good position to be in. Back in the days, just like a couple ones that you need to go and they have all old APIs and you had to manage and work with all of them. Long term, like when you think about series B and beyond, do you see yourself like working with the same boss providers? Like how do you think about being vendor locked in? For now, yes, we're planning to, to scale with the provider that we've chosen and kind of thought about that intentionally when we went ahead and, and thought about who to choose. So right now, yes, and we'll see, you know, if we get to a point down the line where we have, we hope we have too much scale and, and need to start thinking about other solutions. And that I think will be a great problem to have. Oh, yeah. Awesome. I think we went through all the main questions. We covered the team part, the product part, the mission, how you build it, how you fundraise it. Did we miss anything else? as a part of your amazing story starting from zero and like getting here thank you just some other interesting facts about how we think about our problem space i really think that the way that america is structuring families and, and what the modern family looks like today looks a mm. lot different than it did in 1950s today in america 37 percent of millennials keep their money separate at the point of marriage and that's growing every single year starting from the most complex relationship among two different people when it comes to dealing with money, by far the most acute pain point in that space. That said, our platform actually naturally lends itself to expansion over time to married parents with separated finances or even cohabitating couples. There are a lot of points in the family that we can touch, whether that's grandparents, the children themselves, etc. So we started at what we believe is the most acute problem out there to solve. But then from here forward, helping people who working together will be a much easier problem to solve. Are there avenues for you to grow and like expand like into other parts of those relationships and money management, I think is in infinite in a way, like when you think about generations. Before we close up, what would be your one advice that you would give other fintech founders that are trying to build a product in the consumer space? 
The most important thing for me that has always propelled me forward in my career, and I would recommend to anyone early in their careers, is assume that anything is possible. If you have that dream, the world can prove to you otherwise. But if you don't have that dream to begin with, it will never happen. So for everyone out there wanting to start a company, you know, it's possible. Believe in yourself, believe in whatever idea it is that you're working on. Don't be afraid of failing, dream big, and then everything else can cascade from there. That's my biggest advice. Awesome. Thank you for sharing your story. It's, it's going to be very interesting for people to learn and use all this knowledge in their own businesses. And while preparing for this interview, I was like, okay, the key phrase at the end should be upward and onward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do use that quite a bit internally. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.